Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discussions and Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. And this week, we're finishing up our discussion on beefs with 5e and closing out with a few things that we love about it. So, Jaren, I believe you have a little bit more to talk about this week, so I'll go ahead and uh, pass it on over to you because I know that uh, we want to we wanna finish up this kind of three-episode mini-arc of our beefs, um, not to just sit and complain about 5e, but to have a discussion on our genuine concerns and problems that we have come up and come up against throughout our campaigns. And, and at the end, we're going to throw some love at 5e because we do really enjoy this system and uh, are grateful that it does exist. But before we get into that, Jaron, what's your beef? Right. So, um, fifth edition is a simple system and we'll talk about that when we get to the good, but I think some things are oversimplified to the point of losing any semblance of realism. Um, this is evidenced by just the large amount of homebrew rules that exist, um, things that are, you know, for the most part, quality of life changes or getting back to some sense of realism. And for this first point, I wanted to talk about uh, AC, armor class. Um, well, for, for starters, it is basically an always-on constant, regardless of anything else, regardless of, uh, of amount of damage or damage type or whether or not you're about to die. It's just an always-on constant. And it, to me, that feels a little bit disconnected from any sense of reality. And I know that there are certain effects um, that monsters have that can, uh, over time, reduce the effectiveness of, of armor or to the point of completely uh, degrading it. There's some certain acidic effects that can corrode metallic armor, for example. Um, but I, I would like to see some mechanic, at least in some way, I thought about this a bit, um, that maybe instead of just being an always-on effect, uh, maybe it's something that like uh, completely negates a certain amount of damage uh, before you start taking hit points yourself. Um, or maybe it is, maybe it's got a damage threshold like some um, naval ships might have, certain constructs. Um, I like something like that, you know. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me that, um, you know, if I take a fireball to the chest, that goes directly through my armor and impacts me and my armor is completely fine. Uh, other things like, you know, why does heavy plate mail have anything to do with psychic damage? You know, and I understand that a, a character has a base coat armor class, which is really just their ability to uh, withstand damage or get out of the way of it. So armor class isn't necessarily a representation of how well your armor negates damage, just how well you as a character are able to avoid damage. Um, but certain things, like I mentioned, uh, metallic armor, heavy armor, uh, helping to, helping you to not take psychic damage is kind of odd, just to give an example. Um, I would like to see something, I don't know what the solution is, but in some way, get a little bit closer to a sense of realism in that regard. Yeah, you know, especially with, like you said, with taking a fireball directly to the chest, your skin is singed, but you're armor is totally fine is pretty unrealistic when you think about the types of wear and tear that armor can have i think maybe it would it would be pretty tough to track but i think it would be fun to try and maybe think about having each piece of armor have its own health 
Like we know that constructs have their own AC and own amount of hit points to like a door, you know, an a iron door that you're trying to break down is going to have more than like five hit points because it's going to take more than a single swing of an axe to get through an iron door. So why not think about that in terms of your armor? Sure, it may be a little bit more tedious, but for those that are seeking realism, I think that might be a solution potentially having your armor have hit points or their their own, I guess, AC and hit points maybe. Well, it wouldn't be AC. Like if you're struck, your armor is struck. And if you, you know, say your your chest piece can withstand 50 points of damage, it will take as much damage as you take and before it's just completely gone. Um, so... It, I mean, it would suck to have that gone in the middle of a in the middle of a fight. But you know, some people don't think about food. Sometimes some people don't think about water when they go to a town. I know that's just not high on priority list when it comes to DMs. I know I had a DM. I've, I've said this in the past that gave us this magical ring that said, "All right, you don't need to go to the bathroom or eat anymore. This is the magical ring. I don't like dealing with food or going to the bathroom." Right, and um, I, I I do understand that. The realm that I'm suggesting we start getting closer to is that point of tediousness where, you know, it becomes a bit much when, okay, well, we get into town. I need to repair my bracers. I need to repair my boots. I need to repair my uh, my breastplate and, and the helm. Um, but maybe, you know, some bit of that could be satisfying where you get back into town and, hey, your armor is pretty beat up. You got to spend some time and money to get it fixed. That's it. You know, th maybe some middle ground in between those two. Um, where the other extreme is, hey, your armor is completely fine all the time. You just got crushed underneath an avalanche and took 300 damage, but your armor's totally fine. Right. And I think that would also alleviate some sort of rich party syndrome. I know sometimes uh, DMs get very excited about their party reaching the conclusions of arcs, and they they get their money. They And they just have 2,000 gold, 3,000 gold just sitting in their pockets, and they're like, still trying to get the best deal on a piece of meat. So that might be something to for your players to invest their money in is their armor or buying better armor, buying damage-resistant armor, things like that. I think it, it is a little bit tedious, and I think that at some point it may get a little annoying. However, if we are going for realism and we are trying to fix some of the realistic inconsistencies in our games, I think that... Maybe that could be something that should be worked towards because AC is is kind of a fickle thing when it comes to creatures. Creatures have their own AC because they're they're animals and they don't wear armor, so they have their natural quote unquote you know what's called natural armor. But we as humanoids that have sentience, we can buy armor and we can put things on ourselves, but things break. So I, I think that's a it's a really good point and interesting system to think about in the future um, what AC might look like. Yeah, you know, now that we're talking about it, this, this does make me think at least there should be a differentiation between types of armor. Um, you know, whether or not it's armor that adds to how well you can resist damage and how well you can simply avoid that damage, right? Like, if you've got heavy plate armor, that's really good at uh, preventing damage. It's a big cushion. Uh, you're going to take it, but it's the, the armor is going to take a brunt of that damage. Uh, whereas, you know, like light armor, it... You know, maybe it, or maybe there's some other type of magical armor that instead of actually taking the damage, it just makes you a little bit more mobile in combat and adds to your natural ability to get out of the way of damage. I'm not saying that necessarily is, you know, leather armor or, or 
you know, just there, I think there is room to have uh, different types, right? Different ways that you're able to get out of the way of damage. Um, like we talked about, like I mentioned before, you know, your natural armor class doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you've got a thick skin. It's just if you're a high dex character, your armor, your quote, armor class is a representation of how well you, you can simply get out of the way. Maybe there could be a type of armor that helps you in that way too, um, versus armor that simply uh, takes the damage. I'm not sure. Right. But I think there's at least room to think about that, talk about it, have some sort of mechanic. Maybe it's simply best left as a homebrew thing. Not sure. Anyways, enough on AC. Uh, Britton, what have you got next? So this is for 5e, but it is mostly for... I guess in terms of the, the larger scale, it's 5e, 4e, 3.5, 3. It's the entirety of D&D having a grid-based combat system. Grid-based combat systems inherently lead to problems with non-square damage areas, such as cones, spheres, and cylinders. Uh, as much as that I've looked into this, um, there doesn't seem to be a standardized way for circular areas of damage to be represented on the battlefield. Now, everyone has their own way of what a 15-foot cone looks like, or a, you know, a 30-foot cylinder or a 20-foot sphere, thinking about it in terms of, all right, well, each creaser takes up five feet of space, and what does that mean if the 116th of the corner of the square is taken up by damage does that mean that the creature takes that damage even though they their toe was hit by the damage does that mean that they take the full brunt of damage um the best solution that we've come up with at our table is we do have a physical like a mark like a physical it's a circular clear plastic thing that has a grid on it that has a you know a sphere and a cone things like that um that we just place on the battlefield so that we can see. But unfortunately, when you're using different online tools or you're trying to play where you don't have some of these physical tools to help you, it can be very difficult to try to represent cones, spheres, and cylinders. Yeah, and that's especially true when you're talking about um, spherical areas of effect and when you've got things on different levels and you're trying to, you know, not be too so technical about it that you're having to do calculus in order to figure out does this sphere clip this one five by five foot cube that is ten feet below with this the center of the area effect you know it just kind of gets a little bit silly um, where you just have to make a call and say uh, no it's probably not close enough right I mean like just last week while we were playing in our game um, my cleric had cast uh, the spirit guardians and it's a twenty they flit around you in a fifteen foot sphere. And we had to think about, okay, well, we're on the middle level of a ship. How high is the ceilings? Does these do these ghosts go through the ceiling and the floor to hit the people above and below me? Like, it's just a lot to think about in terms of grid-based. Where are these creatures standing in the grid? And, okay, maybe the, the spirits graze the top of their helmet. But does that mean that they're taking this damage? And, um, yeah. And I think this kind of actually bleeds into your second point. Uh, regarding creatures taking up this this grid space. Yeah, totally. Um, so uh, on that topic uh, of, of taking up grid space, um, if you look at the player's handbook, I think it's on page 191 of the player's handbook, if I'm not mistaken, we have different size categories ranging from, I think, tiny to gargantuan. They take up different amount of space. And the book's very careful to say, 
we're not implying that these are the actual dimensions of these different size categories. It's just the space that it needs to uh, take up in order to fight effectively. And uh, one of my issues with that, um, besides what we talked about with, uh, you know, area of effect uh, spells or, or, or effects, um, just barely clipping that specific grid space and you have to make a ruling, does this affect it or not? Um, is the fact that like, I understand, you know, a, a five foot, you know, cube, um, a, a, something that's a, a medium humanoid size, they're swinging a sword, they're going to need some range of motion in order to actually make that effective. Um, but what about things that are, are that same size category that don't need that space to take up when they're in combat? Things like uh, rogues, if I want to dash in and try to stab something, I don't need a full five feet of motion. I need to be literally right up on that thing. Or if I'm a caster and my range of the spell is touch, I need to be physically on top of that thing in order to do it. I don't need five feet of distance. I need to be on that thing. Um, so I think there are certain things where that doesn't make sense, certain things where it does. Um, and to make this one blanket ruling I, it doesn't really make sense to me. I'm not really sure how to solve it, especially when we're looking at uh, top-down grid-based battle maps where, you know, theoretically things shouldn't be able to be like literally on top of each other. Um, I'm not sure what the solution is, but I think there is uh, room for improvement. I think maybe a little bit more delineation. It shouldn't just be five foot squares. I don't, I don't know. See, it's it's really difficult in terms of in terms of that because you know we think about combat in five foot squares, and then you know I, I don't I don't want to go too far off topic, but just the the idea of five foot square grid system lends itself to some of the inconsistencies that 5e has written especially like jump distance where it's like you you will some people can jump like long jump like three feet okay well you didn't actually move anywhere in a square um and most battle maps have you know rivers that are five feet wide or ten feet wide and it's like okay well your long jump distance doesn't mean a thing then what if you can only long jump um three feet all right it's tripled now it's nine feet okay well that's you're technically moving 10 feet because that's the grid system and i don't know it's yeah and i, I don't know I, I know maybe i'm getting a little bit too technical but you know while i'm thinking about um in like melee combat wanting to go and stab something or or physically i need to touch something um i, I need to be closer than than five feet i need to be closer than that that uh you know one grid space away and uh, sort of like the the bigger the difference you know if i'm uh, taking up a five foot cube on the grid and uh, i'm trying to stab or touch something that takes up 15 you know I, I need to be a lot closer than simply next to it or even like one square into it you know i need to be close enough that i can actually deal a significant uh, a significant strike on it Maybe I'm getting too technical on it, but um, I think there is, you know, like I said, also room for improvement in how we use uh, the grid system, how we use uh, the amount of space things take up. Um, and I think, it, you know, the start is the, the handbook saying specifically, like, this isn't these dimensions. Um, it's just the area that you need to take up in order to fight effectively, or um, it's the area that you command, basically. You know, the other example they gave was if there's a creature in a in a doorway that's a you know a five foot cube doorway on the map, um, you kind of control that space if you're in it, and you need to you know permit something to pass through. Um, you can't just sneak through the legs, for example. You need to act, you know allow them to get through you, which 
I can understand that. That makes sense. Um, but other things that, you know, maybe we don't need maps for uh, to say that, like, if we're for you, maybe this just becomes more prevalent since we're doing a lot of D&D online these days where we're using these five foot uh, grid battle maps to say, you know, for example, if we've got a party uh, trying to do a dungeon crawl or something, you know, and we've got a 15 foot room that the party's in. Uh, well, they take up a, a five foot cube, so you can only fit three people side by side in a 15 foot room. It's just kind of silly, you know. So maybe it's uh, that's sort of a, a place where a grid system doesn't make sense. Maybe this would be a lot easier once we get back to in person and we're doing much more theater of the mind and much more. Uh, if we do have a map, you've got minis that, you know, while they theoretically take up five feet of space, you can fit them much closer because they're a mini. And they take right. up a, a, an actual realistic amount of space. Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes when we when we have some of these discussions about our beefs, it's like, I don't know if I have a solution, but I definitely have a criticism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're not that we don't have all the answers, but we have uh, as experienced players, uh, we've got things that we've found we do and don't like. Right. So uh, enough of beating up the grid. What's what's next? So my last thing that I had today was something that I think that we may have touched on several times throughout these past couple episodes with the beefs. We haven't said it outright, but we've kind of hinted at it and we've talked about, um, you know, combat being so important in 5e. My potentially one of my biggest beefs with 5e is that the three pillars of D&D are not equally represented in 5e. Um, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with the three pillars, the three pillars are social interaction, combat, and exploration. And it feels to me like 5th edition places combat in the number one priority spot. Second is social interaction and way at the end of the list, it seems like, is exploration, which unfortunately renders some classes and subclasses completely ineffective or very, very weak. I know it is a common joke that rangers are a dump class or are the semi-useless class, or you have some subclasses like illusion wizards or some bards that don't output as much damage as other subclasses. And they seem weaker because a lot of people think about like how many D6s worth of damage or how many D8s worth of damage on this cantrip. Or like, you know, we think about characters and classes and subclasses being strong based on what combat prowess they have or how much damage they can output. And I think because 5th edition is so obsessed with combat, it has led to a player obsession with combat. And we tend to forget about... Um, the exploration part. And to illustrate this, I will I will talk about rangers. Rangers have inherent abilities that they get as they level up that lend themselves to exploration. Like um, they are able to move through difficult terrain without sacrificing any sort of movement. They have their favored terrain and where they can just discern information about the area that they are in if it is their favored terrain or animals that are in their favored terrain they have favored enemies where they can track these creatures through their favored terrains with advantage and things like that 
And that's the more exploration side, more nature, survival, things like that, that a druid is not necessarily as good at because they are one with nature. They draw their power and their magic from nature, but they are not in the thick of nature. They are not surviving, building fires, trapping and hunting their prey, things like that. So it it's it's kind of hard to conceptualize all characters being equal or equally useful in a party when combat is at the forefront of most people's minds when it comes to how powerful their character is yeah and, and like you mentioned uh, combat being first uh, social interaction being second your things like perception and investigation and persuasion and deception those are going to be your other powerful skills to have uh, when you're in social interactions when you're in the town trying to ask around and figure out what's going on when you're in the dungeon trying to see if you notice the thing at the back of the chamber um whereas like you mentioned tracking things down and wilderness exploration not quite as uh, important or prevalent um, i know we were talking before we started recording but i i haven't really ever seen difficult terrain be a mechanic that mattered outside of combat no I, I honestly don't remember the last time my DM has asked us what our rate of travel is so that we can discern if we have a disadvantage on perception checks or disadvantage on stealth rolls or, or things like that because it's just been, all right, your, your, your party is on the road. And I guess perception check to see if you see this group of gnolls coming at you. But again, now we're, we're jumping right back into combat. We're not talking about, all right, so my ranger goes out and this is what they find. They relay this to the party. Um, so now they know to not set foot in this area because they know that gnolls travel through this area or things like that. You know, it's, I think it leads to a lot of player apprehension to choose rangers as a class because they're not going to output as much damage. So they may not feel as useful um, in, in their party. Yeah, that is a good point, and maybe this is getting a little bit tangential, but um, the idea that generally a D&D party sticks together uh, kind of sets up rangers who would be really good at scouting ahead and tracking something down on their own because of their certain set of skills. Um, it would be really to their advantage to go off and do that stuff by themselves, um, where... Like I said, we're, we're typically encouraged to not split the party to keep everybody together. And that kind of, you know, puts Rangers at a further disadvantage. And if you think about half casters and what they can do, all right, you've got artificers. Artificers can make magical items. They are strong as hell. They are versatile and useful. Uh, they're really smart because intelligence is their main stat. You've got paladins. The things that they can do is heal. They have a god or they have an oath. They're able to heal. They can see the auras of devils, demons, and celestial creatures. Rangers. Well, the ranger can scout, but how many people are using a ranger to scout instead of the, the rogue or another person that has high perception? Not many rangers are seen in a party because not... A lot of exploration is represented in people's campaigns because 5e is so combat focused and i don't want to harp on that it just and i i don't want to harp and i don't want to seem too precious about rangers because honestly i don't really play rangers that much i've maybe built two or three in my entire time playing D, &D but 
I will say that I think that no class or subclass should feel like the weak choice. Everyone should be able to feel like I want to create a character and I want to feel good in my character. I may not do the most damage, but that doesn't mean that I'm not useful. Um, sometimes it feels like some classes do what other classes do, but just better. And I think that when it comes to combat, that is absolutely the case when it comes to Rangers, which is unfortunate. Yep, I, I agree with you there. Well, I do think that after now three episodes, we have probably harped on 5e enough. Um, we've we've told you our beefs. We've told you some of our gripes, complaints, possibly some of our solutions to what we would like to see changed. Um, and now I think it's a good time to end this three episode arc on things that we love about 5e and what makes us want to continue playing and create characters and sit down on our, on our free time inside rolling dice with our friends. So I'll get it started. And I'll first say, uh, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, fifth edition is a pretty simple system. Um, there's, there are some intricacies and complications. A lot of those have to do with uh, either, you know, the nuances of different subclasses, or I think maybe in the beginning, the biggest hurdle is going to be character creation. But the good news is there's a lot of tools in order to help that. There's all sorts of random tables. There's online tools, D&D um, Beyond for character creation. It gives you all the prompts you need. And if you still are missing all that, um, your DM will certainly help you make a character. Beyond that, it's pretty easy. You know that when you want to do something, you're going to roll a d20 and add a number. When you go into combat, you're going to roll a d20 and add a number. If you want to try anything, the DM will say, you know, we'll, we'll tell you what to do. And they're probably going to say, roll a d20 and add a number. Everything is based on this d20 system. And the mechanics of it are pretty simple. Um, there's not a million different skills. There are, you know, a good number of skills. But once you familiarize yourself with them, it's, it's really not all that complicated. You've got uh, certain abilities, uh, ability scores. Um, and I think they've done an, a good enough job to keep those abilities and skills diverse to cover most things without trying to shoehorn a bunch of different things under the same umbrella. Um, and at the same time, it's, uh, you know, diverse enough that it covers most things without being overly, uh, overly tedious and without being way too many different categories of skills and abilities. It's, it's enough without being too much, I guess is what I'm saying. And it's an easy system to jump into. Yeah. And I think that as we've talked about in previous episodes about Tasha's, um, we've talked about versatility and accessibility. I think that this lends itself to actually my point, uh, talking about there is something for everyone. I think new players can be put at ease thinking about it's not that complicated in terms of character creation and jumping in and learning something about your class subclass. Spellcasting, yeah, we've talked about it can be a little bit more streamlined. I think that, you know, we've talked about spell slots, uh, slot level, spell save DC, and spell attack bonus, like all these different things. But at the end of the day, there is something for everyone, and everyone can learn a class subclass. Having the knowledge accessible to you and having so many resources to do that with. I think that what makes 5th edition so cool is the amount of content that's coming out 
homebrew or not, even just the base, you know, the three books that we have right now, Player's Handbook, Xanathar's, and Tasha's. And I'll just say those main three. We're not talking about, you know, Eberron or Theros, things like that. Um, the, the three main ones that are about character creation and class subclass, um, you can basically think of whatever you want and some sort of class subclass will support that. Not even including multi-classing. And I think that's really cool that a gaming system is so big that it supports basically whatever you want to do. And I love that. Yeah, I agree. And I'll add on to that. Even though we like to dress up the game and do all these fancy things, we have all these different source books. And uh, now that we're playing online, a lot of us like to uh, add all sorts of elements. We like to have music and uh, cool, colorful battle maps and images. And, um, you know, when we're playing in person, we have all these expensive minis and maps and all sorts of stuff. At the end of the day, it's a theater of the mind game with some dice. You know, you probably have to spend 50 bucks at some point to get the player's handbook. That's just a given. But uh, it's it's a really easy and, and accessible game to get into. Um, you know, when you compare this to like other other types of games, uh, most decent board games these days are going to be, a, you know, at least 50 bucks. And for that same cost, you get the player's handbook, which has, you know, potentially years of different memories and, and stories that you can tell with your friends. Yeah. And, you know, um, somebody that's in my my Sunday game right now, uh, it's <laughs> love her. She uh, this is her first character, first campaign. She picked Bard because she loves music like she as a person loves music and loves art. So she wanted to play a Bard. And now she has become the most bloodthirsty combat starting like player she is not happy unless we have at least one round of combat per session she wants to know all of her spells throw them out there she looks through the books she looks up all these other resources and i I love seeing a brand new player so hungry for information and that information not being locked behind a paywall there are so many free resources to just google things and build a character and i think that's so cool um you know, I, I'm sitting here with a smile on my face just because I, I I love seeing new players have access to this information, creating these characters and falling in love with the characters that they create. Hell yeah. Damn. I just, I love D&D. Everybody that's listening, we, we love to rip on 5e, but what we love more is Dungeons and Dragons, telling stories, fight and fights, charming bar people, and you know, saving the day. Agreed. Unless you're an evil campaign, then ruining the day. Yeah, exactly. Um, my my last point that I'll say um, is I, I think for the most part, the published content has just gotten better and better. Um, you know, I, the first time I really ever tried the DM was right after 5th edition was released and they, they started having published content. I think the only two that were available at the time were uh, Princes, of the Poc- Princes of the Apocalypse and The Horde of the Dragon Queen. Um, back before... Uh, that was a complete two-volume set um, with the rise of Tiamat and uh, was put into a, a one-volume set, one published piece of content called Tyranny of Dragons. But I remember back then, um, yeah, it was a different uh, company. It was a, a company called Cobalt Press that published that. Um, it was a bit rough. I think by today's standards, it would still not really rank up there with the, the best adventures. Um, but compare that to like what we've got more recently, the last few things that have been released 
Um, you know, I still have to go through Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, so I won't really comment on that. Um, but the ones before that, you know, we've got Rhyme of the Frostbane, which, you know, has, you know, mixed reviews online, but there is so much content in that. It's it got some really beautiful artwork, uh, really interesting character backgrounds and secrets and new monsters and new items, rules for, um, you know, cold weather travel and avalanches and all sorts of stuff. Um, that just I just as like a source material, you could pull all sorts of stuff out of that. Um, not necessarily running that adventure, but you could pull out some really really cool stuff into your own games in a homebrew setting. Uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything that added so much to the game. Um, before that, the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount introduced us to an entirely new world with you know new subclasses, new spells, all sorts of cool stuff uh, from the world of uh, Critical Role. Um, so I think just the content over time just gotten better and better. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to future releases. I'm I'm hopeful about the future of fifth edition. Oh yeah, I, I feel like sometimes I'm like a a kid in a toy store. Whenever I see a new book come out, I can't wait to look through it. I can't wait to see what they've come up with um, and how we can change it. You know, I with new material, there's always ways to play with it and make it your own and. Like just like you said, the the content with more writers and more inclusivity and more representation, the writing, the content, and the amount of new works will just only get better. And I I'm very excited to see, I'm very excited to actually see a an edition of Dungeons and Dragons get so much um, criticism, change and an open discussion on how to make it better and seeing Wizards of the Coast take active steps to make it better, especially with Tasha's. We've seen that. We've seen them address things about, you know, racial bonuses and negatives. We've seen them address things about um, additional spells, additional features, things that their characters or their their classes, subclasses may have been lacking in. And they are taking steps to make sure that each class subclass does not feel like a waste of your time to play right and while we're mentioning tasha's um i'm really glad that in tasha's they had a section on session zeros um oh yeah one of my things that you know this is sort of like a negative but i'm also hopeful because we're talking about you know the future of fifth edition and how things have just gotten better is i'd really like to see a supplement to the dm's guide because i think that it's missing a lot it's, it does have a lot of information but i think a lot of what's in the current dm's guide is not necessarily the most useful things. Uh, most of what I use a DM's guide for these days is the magic items, uh, magic item tables, and, um, you know, costs of things, for example. Um, but I'm glad that Tasha's had a section on session zeros because that, that sort of tells me that they've at least got a finger on the pulse of what the community needs. Um, and, and maybe at some point there will be an updated version of the DM's guide or maybe simply an add-on like... Like we've had with the player's handbook, we've had uh, the um, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and Xanathar's as basically supplements to that player's handbook. Maybe at some point there will be a supplement to the DM's guide. You know, they've had sections in these books that have been like, yeah, here's some new traps. Uh, here's a couple of new tools. Um, I would I would really love to see an entire supplement that's just for DM's um, where, yeah, they're talking about the session zero. They're talking about how do you actually prep for a session? You know, one of my favorite resources for uh, DMing, for prepping, is uh, a book called The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master by Sly Flourish. 
Um, it's a really good resource that's honestly been more useful to me than uh, the DM's guide. So with all these new, better and better things that come out in fifth edition, I'm, I'm hoping that at some point, maybe they'll give DM's some, some assistance too, uh, so that people that are brand new to it can not feel overwhelmed by thinking that they have to read the DM's guide cover to cover, uh, and then inevitably just resorting to whatever they can find online. Um, which is kind of what I did and it worked out. It's fine. But you know, I'd love to see some published content that helped that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that concludes our three episode arc on our beefs with five E and spell casting and then continuing our beefs with five E and finally rounding it out with some, some positive things, things that we love about five E anything else you'd like to add or have you forgotten any? That's just a big, <sighs> we made it to the end. We've done it. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you guys so much for stopping by. And if you like this episode, please check out our future episodes, which are released every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Central. And next week, we're going to be discussing some of the more interesting low-level magical items that are not a plus one weapon or a bag of holding that you can add to your campaign. This has been Discussions and Dragons. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. See you guys next time. <laughs>